Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you.
and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Cain. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. All right. What stands out to you from reading this chapter? Some things we talked about last week, some things we didn't. So we didn't read that second half yet. So there's still something forbidden that they can't eat. I haven't really seen that before, but thinking back to how this ties into some of the earlier chapters, but um, Mm -hmm. so they can't eat things with blood. That's a really good observation. There's there's another prohibition in relation to eating something. What is it that they're forbidden from eating? <laughs> they're not catfish. <laughs> 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 um, for blood. Yeah. Yeah, they're prohibited from eating blood. And why? What's the significance of that? In the text. Don't say anything about vampires. Certain varieties of German sausage. Because it's the lifeblood, I guess? Yeah. The blood relates to life. I mean, God has control. Okay, good. What else? He also mentions the death penalty for murder. So you've got, it actually seems related now that it's brought up as lifeblood. Okay. And who has the responsibility for carrying out that death penalty? Man. Man. So whether this is the first time or not, right, God designates people as those who should carry out judgment on others who have killed people. Not noted before this. Yeah, there's a covenant with Noah. Not only Noah, but every, everybody. Good. And we have a covenant. With Noah and the whole world. Noah plus. There's 
It's mentioned that Ham's father, Canaan, but it's more than once. Yes. You still want us to okay. Yeah. We'll come back to lots and lots of questions about the whole second half. What exactly did Ham do? And why is Canaan the one who catches it for what his father does? Let's go there. Let's look at that. So Ham and Canaan, right? So it's interesting because I think we often think about this in terms of Noah's sin, right? Noah begins to be a man of the soil. Who's that remind us of, by the way? Adam and Cain. Okay. So that maybe has us entering into this episode with a question mark over what's happening. Is this good? Is this bad? Is this is he carrying out the command to be fruitful and multiply? Is he just doing his job? Or is he being characterized in a way that reminds us of Cain? Don't know, right? Because um, if we look back at Genesis 4, verse 2, right? Uh, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Not quite the same phrase, but very similar, right? Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Okay. What else? So he plants a vineyard. This is, this presumably this takes a while, right? Like, you don't stick a vine in the ground and then have a glass of wine. <laughs> so a lot of time has passed over in just a couple of sentences. Things are moving forward from the flood. There's this development of agriculture. Um, and so Noah, right, Lender uh, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. What do we make of that so far? Good, bad, neutral, password. Somebody said he did something inappropriate. It's not a good example to his sons. Okay, not a good example to his sons. Um, is it public? No. No. He's inside his own tent. So what was the deal with Noah being naked? The law was so bad for him to see him naked. Okay, here's the crux of the issue with Ham. What does it mean, right? We know what it means that Noah lay uncovered in his tent. But what does it mean that Ham saw his father's name? He went in for his tent uninvited. Okay. And he told his brothers. Yeah, I just figured he went out and like, made fun of his dad. Okay, so... Several ways that we can read this, right? One is Ham goes in, sees his dad with no clothes, comes out sneakering, and tells the brothers about it. And his brothers walk him backwards and cover him up. Does that make sense of the other things we see in the passage? No. Right? Why on earth would a curse fall on Ham's son, Canaan, if that's all that happened? Mind you, I'd be pretty upset if one of my sons did that to me, right? And there would be words. Um, 
but does it does that alone make sense of what we see in the passage? And what about how does Noah respond? What does the text say about that? He cursed him, or he cursed his children. Yeah, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, and he curses not him, but King. Okay. Two other possibilities. Uh, it both relate to later parts of scripture, the way they phrase things, right? One possibility is that Ham has committed some kind of homosexual act against his father. Uh, in the phrasing of Noah awoke and knew what his son had done to him. And then thinking about the later characterization of the Canaanites and Canaanite worship, there's a relationship there. So that could that be uh, what is passed over euphemistically in the phrase uh, he saw the nakedness of his father in verse 22. That is one possibility. There's another possibility. As we read the laws and the Pentateuch, right, to uncover the nakedness of your father um, usually means incest with your mother. Could that be uh, what is passed over euphemistically in this phrase that he came in and saw the nakedness of his father? And does that perhaps make more sense of why then the curse would fall on his son? Possibly a son born of that union. That's left unresolved for us. Right? So we have these possibilities. Maybe it's just he saw his dad naked and made fun of him, and that's all that happened. But that doesn't make a whole lot of sense about why Canaan is cursed. More likely, given what's usually involved with that language of uncovering someone's nakedness, there's some kind of perverse act uh, that Ham commits. But its consequences fall not on Ham, but on Ham's son. So there's more going on than just that euphemistic language. Sorry. Well, the text specifically says that he was laying naked in his tent. Mm -hmm. So wouldn't that make it less likely that it was his wife, in, that his wife was involved in that, in a perverse act? That's a good question. Because we do know Noah's already laying uncovered in his tent. The problem is the text is very, very reserved in how it describes things. So we're left with clear impressions that Ham has done something very deeply wrong, but it's not spelled out for us precisely what it was that he did. Could we blanket it and just say it was not righteous? Whatever he did, it wasn't righteous, and therefore there was punishment. Yes, we could say that. But that still leaves us scratching our head about why is it that Canaan is cursed and not Ham? Well, Esau and Canaan were Jacob's brothers. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't reasonable that we know. That we know. 
conversation and they're they're picking up from that the Bible doesn't condemn polygamy. You should probably reread Genesis and ask yourself whether you want the kind of family life uh, that comes along with it. So good. What does Noah say in the in the tail end of the chapter? Noah woke from his wine, knew what his youngest son had done to him. He does, we don't, right? We've got Notions of what might be involved. And what what does he actually say? Can somebody read uh, verses 25 there to the end? First he came from the servant of servants, so he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord and the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant, and the God of Mars, Jacob, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood of Lord, there are three years, all days of the Lord. What do you notice there? Curses one, blesses the other. Yeah, he curses one, he blesses the other two, right? He recognizes their righteousness in the midst of and in the context of their brother's unrighteousness. What does that blessing involve? Verses 26 and 27. Japheth's territory he extended, but in his brother only 
I guess, living in his tents, meaning kind of fall under the protection of his brother in the position and, and all that. Good. Whereas Canaan is going to be underneath both of them as a servant and a slave. Yeah. So Canaan is made subservient. Um, he also sets up a hierarchy between the two elder brothers. He does have a hierarchy. Uh, and it's an interesting phrasing. Uh, he blesses the Lord, the God of Shem, recognizes Shem as um, a worshiper of the Lord. Um, but the blessing there is on the Lord and not directly on the Shem. Uh, and then it says, may God enlarge Jacob. But then in some way, not in, not at all in the same way as Canaan, but it's, it's as though he places Japheth under Shem, under Shem's protection, in the fellowship, protection of, using the word protection a lot, but, but under um, Shem's guardianship, maybe, even? I don't know, that's maybe too strong. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last thing, what does it say? After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Remember the flood, right? He's 500, he has kids, he's 600, flood happens. And then 350 years, so he lives 950 years. And he died. So how do we reflect on the flood as a whole? What, uh, what led to it? Sin. Sin, like that one word and <laughs> sin. <laughs> and did the flood solve the problem of sin? No. Which goes back to that first question we asked, right? Then the why the flood? Why the flood? The flood didn't solve the problem of sin. Thank you. Yeah. The flood complained God's judgment on sin. The flood, because of sin, judgment on and the punishing of sin. But it doesn't remove or resolve the problem of sin. No, because immediately after the flood, here's the great sin. Yeah. And we see it in a general statement back in chapter 8, right? Uh, Noah presents his offering, the Lord smells the offering, and says, uh, verse 21, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. It doesn't say the intention of man's heart was evil from his youth, right, like before the flood, and now we fixed it. But the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So the flood proclaims the judgment on that sin, and it's a universal judgment because of that universal extent of sin. But it doesn't remove the problem. And we see that in the Lord's assessment of humanity there. And we see that in the actions uh, of Ham. 
here right afterwards, like we're Noah and you. So, does that mean that we're going to expect another flood? No. Because Why not? Because God promised there will never be yeah. an event like that. Yeah. He promised that there would, he would never destroy the world by flood again. So, does that mean that we're just stuck with the problem of sin with no resolution? No. Yeah, I think it points to there's gonna have to be a permanent resolution for the permanent flood. So it's a, a different coin. Yeah. 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 Jesus. Okay. Does that is there anything prior to this in Genesis that gives us hope for a resolution of this problem? Yeah, Genesis three, yeah. Sorry, Genesis three. Genesis three. Which is also a moment that's in the midst of judgment, right? And uh, we don't think of that judgment as universal because we're, we've only got two people at that point. But especially because there's only two people, right? And judgment is universal. But in the midst of proclaiming that judgment, what's there that gives us hope? Say that again. When, so you mentioned Genesis 3, right? To find hope in Genesis 3, but where in Genesis 3 do we find hope? Eternal page. It's okay. That's not cheating. Yes. Yeah, verse 15. Right? In Genesis 3 15. In speaking to the servant, the Lord said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there's going to be some mortal combat between the servant as a champion of evil and a seed of the woman as a champion of this righteous line. I think we commented when we were back in Genesis 3, it's interesting that there's this tension set up between the offspring of the servant and the offspring of the woman. But the battle, the, the battle of champions, so to speak, is between the offspring of the woman and the servant itself. Yeah, so what we're looking for, right, like Genesis 3.15 has told us to expect is not what happens at the flood. But the judgment pronounced in the flood also doesn't take that off the table. We're still looking for that. He was talking about the golden cloud, too. And I will remember that will remind me. Well, we know God's not going to forget. Because kind of, to me, that's kind of a sign of when you are still subject to judgment. Mm -hmm. I will not destroy the earth with the flood. But you still full of stuff. Yeah. What's a bow, by the way? Rainbow. Yeah, it is a rainbow, but but it's not described here as a rainbow. It's described as a bow. Yeah, it's a weapon. It's a weapon of war. So God seeing his bow in the clouds is him seeing a weapon of war that he's hung up as though he's finished his some have even made the argument that the bow is pointed upward because of the arc of the rainbow. That doesn't work with physics, right? Because rainbows are circles. 
but but we perceive them not as circles, right? We perceive them as maybe there's something there, but the text doesn't. So we press on, actually, before we press on to chapter two, um, we talked about the flood as a decreation. Right? And we look at the division between light and darkness uh, on, you know, on day one, the division between the waters above and waters below on day two, the division between the seas and the dry land on day three, right? All of that is undone in the flood and then remade as the flood recedes. Those divisions are put back in place. What if I told you that Noah was a second Adam? Not the second Adam, but a second Adam. Because what do we have? We have a recreating of the world after the flood. And then we have a man with whom a covenant is made. And then we have him uh, commanded, like Adam, to be fruitful and multiply. Right? Chapter 9, verse 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then he's given dominion over the creatures. And he begins to work the ground. But does Noah, as a second Adam, does he succeed where Adam failed? No. no. We have another fall. Now we know already from what God had said in chapter 8 that, that evil is already in the world. Evil is already in man. Right? The effects of the fall are not eradicated. So we kind of know before we get into chapter 9, that this second Adam is going to fall. Because it's, it's in him already. But this pattern that Paul picks up and develops in the New Testament, in Romans 5, in 1 Corinthians 15, in other places, is actually a pattern that the Old Testament establishes. Where we have this pattern of like a new creation, and then a new Adam-like figure who's Given this command to be fruitful and multiply, sometimes it's a corporate Adam. We'll see it with Israel entering the, well, exiting Egypt, right, where we have this division of waters as they cross the Red Sea, and then this division of waters again as they cross the Jordan into the Promised Land. But they always fail, right? So that actually the, the narrative of the Old Testament sets us up to look for a last. Adam, who succeeds where Adam failed. So, so Paul's not inventing some new idea of, a, of another Adam we should look for. He's actually using Old Testament categories to tell us who Jesus is. All right. Should we get into chapter 10? Okay. I just can't help but connect on this particular day on uh, this notion Genesis chapter 3, serpent, dumping on his head, mm -hmm. destroying the serpent, because my scripture memory fails me, but there's something about the serpent, this serpent, being stomped on the day of the crucifixion. 
And then this whole notion of warfare, which we're reminded of in Ephesians 6 by the Apostle Paul, this notion of war, and the further notion about the bow being an implement of warfare. And then the, the, the brutality that's necessary to kill the serpent, to eliminate the And then a mocked Christ, son of the living God, uh, who rose from the dead and is coming back violent in war. Just two bits from Peter Gallagher. You had a preview of, of why it's important to recognize this in Genesis 3.15 and to watch for it going forward. And you turn with me to 1 Samuel 17. We'll get here on Tuesday nights, but now you know it's coming. First Samuel 17. It's David and Goliath. Does anybody have the New American Standard with them this morning? This is something that some English translations make a lot of in some time. And the ESP is one of them. To summarize the scene, right? Um, David's brothers are there in battle. Israel's lined up on one side. Philistines are lined up on the other side. There's this valley in between. And the Philistines have a chain, right? He's a massive guy, right? And he comes out every morning and shouts at the Israelites, right? Like, give me a man, and we'll fight, right? And we'll decide the fate of both sides in single combat, right? There's no need to get both armies involved in this, right? Sing out your best, and I'll take him on, and we'll see who wins, right? And there's so much going on in the chapter, right? Because Saul has been characterized before this as, as a head taller than everyone in Israel has demonstrated himself to be an able warrior, He's cowering in his tent like everybody else. And David, this scrappy little kid um, who's short, right? And he says, I'll fight him, right? Now, if we look at the description of Goliath, uh, 1 Samuel 17 and verse 5. Uh, somebody read that one. The uh, Brass upon his head. He was clad with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shells of brass. Okay. And it goes on to describe his, the armor on his legs and how big his spear was and all that kind of stuff. Uh, now, David finds his way into Saul's tent, right? And Saul offers him his armor. And of course, David and Saul are not the same size. His armor doesn't work, right? And so in verse 38, it describes Saul's armor. Can somebody read that? Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. Yeah. Doesn't sound much different, right? I mean, one translation is chosen brass over bronze, but it's, that's the same work. There's just understanding of different. There's actually a key difference in how their armor is described that these two different English translations have glossed over. Yeah, well, I mean, NIV, it says scale. Yes. So Goliath's armor, could you read that verse for us, please? That's back at verse 5. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. Yeah. 
the scale arm. Right? Our translators are not deceiving us, right? They've looked at that description of Goliath's armor. He says, well, of course, that describes chainmail, right? And then they looked at the description of Saul's armor, and they said, well, of course, that describes chainmail. But the words used are different, and the word that's used to describe Goliath's armor is the word for scales, scales like a snake. Goliath, as the champion of the enemies of the people of God, is a serpent. And he's challenging Israel to produce a champion for single combat. This is an enacting of the Genesis 3.15 promise. It's not the final uh, carrying out of it. But this is something to watch for as we continue to read Scripture. Where do you see things like single combat? Where do you see things like the destruction of a serpent or a dragon? Because this is an image that is continually referred back to. Almost like people knew and read Genesis. Told the story of what God would do in terms of how to describe it. All the way through the New Testament, right, where, where Paul, writing to the Romans, says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Uh, all the way through to Revelation, where, where we talk about the fall of and destruction of the serpent or the dragon, who is Satan. And we don't get it yet at the flood, right? The flood doesn't destroy the serpent. All right, so we'll hop into Genesis 10. Genesis 10, we get another genealogy. Some of us like genealogies. I say some of us, that's probably just me. I right, these are the places Bible reading plans come to die. Uh, Genesis 10, usually we've got enough momentum at the beginning of January that we can get past it, especially because we know that we're not to Abraham yet. Uh, and then we get a little further, and it's harder, but they're usually shorter. Uh, we get into, if we get far enough along, we make it through Leviticus, right? Then we hit a book called Numbers. Like it's called Numbers, and it starts with the census. And if you get past that census, you get like two-thirds of the way through it, there's another census. And you're not done with the book yet, and then and you give up, right? Or if you make it past that, you get to Chronicles. You've got nine chapters of genealogies. Uh, who's read Chronicles? Any time you say? Two of us. Okay, yeah. Oh. But genealogies do things, Right? They're used for a purpose, and they do a few things, right? One is they show lines of descent, right? Uh, they show the extent of the growth of a family. And they're used a lot in the narrative of the patriarchs because Abraham's given these glorious promises of the growing of a family, right? The number of the stars, and then you follow through, and he, you know, the patriarchs have like one or two kids and their cousins, are like rabbits, and it's recorded alongside them. So we get that contrast that helps explain their struggle with faith. Uh, they're also used to fast forward. Right? As part of what's going on in Chronicles, there's nine chapters of names. It goes all the way back. If we, if we go from Genesis to the end of Second Kings, 
we get a more or less continuous history from creation to the exile. Chronicles does that in nine chapters. Well, well, it didn't get us all the way to the exile, but it gets us all the way from Adam and creation to the death of Saul in nine chapters because he uses genealogies to fast forward. When Matthew tells the story of Jesus, he begins with genealogies. He starts with Adam. Takes us from Adam to Abraham. Sorry, starts with Abraham. Takes us from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, from the exile to Jesus. In a way that ties Jesus into Israel's history and reminds us of that history without having to recount it in detail, right? It's like watching it on fast forward. What about here? Right? Let's read this chapter. And when you ask the question, we probably won't be able to resolve it this morning. What is this genealogy doing? What's its function at this point in Genesis? These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madog, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. If you're looking for a name for your child, this is chapter 13. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Sprithbath, and Tergarm. I don't know how to pronounce these any better than you guys. I'm just saying it with confidence. <laughs> the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodin. From these, the Kofun peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, and Canaan. Sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, uh, Sabta, Ra'ama, and Sabtaka. The sons of Ra'ama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalmah in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludin, Amamin, Lehabin, Naphtuhin, Pathrusim, Kasluhin, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtuhin. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Argites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Alma, and Zeboim as far as Vasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Jacob, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arthapshad, Lud, and Paran. The sons of Paran, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arthapshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons, the name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Aladad, Shelah, Hazramadad, Jerah, Hadaram, Uthal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Shiva, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobah. All these were the sons of Jordan. The territory in which they lived extended from Misha in the direction of Sephar, 
to the hill country in the east. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. What do you think this genealogy is doing here? Well, I don't know, but I will say that the genealogy of Canaan, we see those plans play out a lot in the coming books. So, whereas the other two genealogies, not so much. Yeah, all the ites that come from Canaan, right? Those are the people in the land that the Israelites have to displace as they come into the land, right? The people who are hearing the book of Genesis for the first time, are the people who are going to go and face combat with those people for their children. They're all and, evil cities. Sorry? They're mostly evil cities. Yeah, mostly evil cities. Jebusites, the Amorites, the Gershites, the Hivites, the Argites, yeah, all the Hivites. Okay. Is Egypt the same Egypt? Egypt, yep. Yeah. Yep. The um, in the line describing the sons of Ham and all of that, it mentions the great city, it mentions cities, it mentions like the mighty hunter. Like, are these are we supposed to remember the line of Cain? We're supposed okay. to be across the same area? Yeah, yeah. Uh, because Nimrod is one who makes a name for himself, right? And he makes a name for himself by building a kingdom um, known for these massive, famous cities. Cities that will come up again as we continue reading the scripture, especially Nineveh and Babylon. So, yeah, he probably reminds us of King, who built a city, right? He was told that he'd be a wanderer, and the first thing he did was build a city and named it after his son. <laughs> And isn't that when we get the vocabulary of the word Nimrod is from him? Yes. Yeah. And this mighty hunter before the Lord, that's not saying God thought he was an awesome hunter and so recorded him, right? Before the Lord is probably against the Lord. Like there's an element of defiance in that description. So. Okay. I'll go ahead and tell us, we're running close on time, that, um, we get the cart before the horse with Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. Because Genesis 11, with the Tower of Babel, describes the breaking up of the family of Noah into separate nations, which then spread. But we get the list of those peoples and their relationships to each other in chapter 2. Interesting thing that Moses does is he narrates. The language is yeah, yeah, languages are mentioned. Although the languages aren't divided, well, confused and divided until the next chapter. So once we've read chapter 11 together, let's come back and look back to over chapter 10. But we'll save that for next week. They, always, they also, again, pointed in verse 21, Shem, whose older brother was Jacob. Like they put, they want to keep calling those two guys together and. Yeah. Really, Pam. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they want 
Moses wants the audience to know how these groups of people are related to one another. That's important. And these different people groups that they will encounter or have relationships with, what's their relationship to the sons of Noah? What's their relationship to promise and blessing versus judgment and cursing? How do they assess their relationship with these people around them in light of the history of God's ways with these people? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to read it together, to reflect on it, to, to ponder these things. We pray that you would continue to develop in us a desire to know your word better, that we might know you more fully. Would you open our eyes that we might see Jesus in your word? And we ask this in his name. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.